Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 7th, 2021, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, God's Righteousness, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. You know, contrary to what most people think, the Bible is not a sequence of moral stories that are simply put together to encourage us to be better human beings. Oh, I just read this, you know, this is gonna be the thing that's gonna make me a, a better person. The Bible actually has this one continuous storyline. It starts at the beginning and goes all the way to the end, that is that people apart from a life submitted to God are messy. They're sinners. We can wound each other with our own selfishness. We can mess up our own lives with simply the choices that we make. There's a word that theologians use to describe the condition, and that is depravity. It's the idea that someone who is incapable of being righteous, there's nothing that they can do to make them righteous. See, I cannot be righteous apart from God's love and forgiveness, his transformation. It's impossible, no matter what I do. I mean, you could, you could take and, and give away every single dollar you've ever had. You could help every single person you could possibly help. You could spend all of your time doing those things. And you know what? You would be maybe the best person in your family or your neighborhood or even this room. You might be the best person there, but it would not fundamentally make you holy. We fall short of the glory of God. The last nine weeks, I don't know about you, but it does feel a little bit like coming to church and getting beat up, right? Paul has been uh, going through um, the depravity of man. He's been taking out every loophole, every crazy idea, every crazy thought that we could possibly have on how we can end run God and prove ourselves to be worthy and righteous. But as Bob said last week, the depravity of man indicates to us that there is no ability within humanity to be righteous. And because of this lack of an inability, it positions us in a hopeless state, dead in our trespasses, incapable of saving ourselves. It's not words that I choose to hear or even words that I enjoy. Last week we saw that no one seeks God, no one is good, no one is righteous, no, not even one. Paul has covered from sexual immorality in the Gentiles to self-righteous people that hold to the law and say that my high compliance rule following somehow earns me a favor and a position with God. And Paul has said false. We are all sinners. And we'll deal with that verse today. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But today, we get this little inkling of hope. Paul is going to share the gospel with us. It reminds me of the old story about the rat in the bucket. Bob illustrated that that we're swimming from Mission Beach in San Diego all the way 5,600 miles to Japan. Um, I'm just gonna make us rats and put us in a bucket, right? There will be no animals harmed in this illustration. So don't email me about that. You can email me about God's word and and all the things that will upset you today, or even all the things that you give praise and glory to God. But 
the rats, it's just an illustration. So, <clears throat> so the rat in the bucket, right? The old story goes like this. If you took a rat and you grabbed one of those Home Depot five gallon orange buckets and you filled it halfway with water and you took the rat and you just gently put them down in the water, the rat will in fact instinctively swim and it will try desperately to pull itself out of the bucket by scraping the walls. Totally incapable of saving itself. But it'll swim, I don't know how long, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, or three days. But the rat will eventually go under. That was Bob's illustration. Is it doesn't matter whether you're swimming in Japan, whether you go short or whether you go midway or you get a great deal of the way. We'll all come up short. We have no ability, no righteousness within ourselves to pull ourselves out of the bucket. But if somewhere along this swim, as you're scraping to the walls and trying to pull yourself out and just going through life, if in fact you pulled the rat out of the bucket and you began to pet it and blow dry it and blow on it and say sweet things to it and all those different things and then took that rat and without any kind of remorse, just dropped it right back down in the bucket again, that rat will continue to swim much longer than it would have ever before because you gave it hope. Today is one of those messages. Thank the Lord. It's a message of hope. But this message, if you walk away from anything, I want you to see the radiance of God's glory. The radiance. I love that word, radiance. Radiance is a light that is coming from an object. And the object here today is Christ Jesus. And God is going to reveal the radiance of God's glory, his son. He's going to refer to his son that which is manifested apart from the law. And we'll see the beauty of this gospel. But let's look at it. Let's turn to it right here in Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says, and again, I want to remind you, it's coming on the heels that no one is righteous, no one's good, right? Not even one. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that's sweet relief. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll deal with that nickel word here today, propitiation. Forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your truth. We thank you for your son and all that he has done to make us in right standing before you. We pray, Lord, that as uh, you have brought each soul that is here today and each soul that is watching online. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in their lives to reveal your glory, to reveal your radiance that is manifested in your son apart from the law. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen.
Today, I'll break this into three parts. And the three parts are God's righteousness through faith in verses 21 and 22. In verses 24 and 25, we'll see God's righteousness through grace. And in verse 26, we'll see God's righteousness through his justice. It's important for us to understand justice. We've just spent nine weeks understanding the law and the crimes that we have all committed. Something or someone has to pay the price so that justice prevails. And we're going to see that here today. In this section, although it brings up not only the relief of the gospel, but it implies maybe a couple difficult questions. The first question is, is, hey Jeff, what about all those people who never hear the gospel? The people that are in those remote parts of the world and they just have never heard it, is there an injustice with God or do these people in fact uh, believe or how does that all particularly work? I can tell you Paul's already addressed a lot of this question. He said that God's invisible attributes, his qualities have been made known since the beginning of time. And he said that we are without excuse. There is no acceptance of ignorance is bliss. None of us are ever going to stand before the Lord with that big lower pouty lip and say, I didn't know. God's invisible attributes, his qualities have been made known since the beginning of time. There is a God. But as people apart from Christ, we didn't seek after that God. We didn't do things that were good. And none of us are righteous, not even one, is what Paul's getting across here. We also understand in the text that it may leave us with this question. How were people saved before Jesus died on the cross? How were people saved in the Old Testament? See, our passage today is probably one of the most important passages of Scripture. And I say that knowing that the next time I preach, it'll be the most important Scripture that we're talking about. Romans 1, 16 and 17 lays the groundwork for this depravity of man and the solution of the gospel that we'll hear today. Paul said in verse 16, 1, 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These are the sins that he's covered. What do the Greeks do? What do the Jews do? He's taking out all sin. He says, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If I were to say that differently, the righteous shall live by faith, I would say it this way. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous. This faith is what reckons righteousness. This gift of grace, this gift of faith is what brings about a righteousness, not our own, but of Christ. This is the gospel message in Romans 1, 2, and now part of 3. And now almost after three chapters of law leading to the conviction of sin, Paul returns to his gospel message. And we now... And we now have a good knowledge of what his argument is up to this point, knowing just how bad things are, for none are righteous, not even one. This is Paul's intent. He wants us to find ourselves incapable of saving ourselves. 
because it's by faith that you will be declared righteous. This trusting and depending upon a holy and a sovereign God. When difficulties in life are going on, God just wants you to be dependent upon him, to trust him, that he's got everything under control. But Paul says here that this is apart from the law and it is through faith and it is by his grace. In fact, Paul said to us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, salvation is by grace through faith and not of our own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. God doesn't want you in any position of saying, look at me. He wants everyone in the position of look at him. But there's something interesting about this message that Paul's talking about here. It shows us God's justice, that God is in fact a loving and a just God. Christ's death on the cross, um, he says that God has not forever passed over former sins. He's left them unpunished. We may suffer the consequence from our sins, but our tendency is to blame God for the consequence. There is, in fact, natural consequence to different things. I love that, uh, that old movie uh, with George Clooney, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? When the young man is explaining to George Clooney's character that the pastor just said that all my sins have been forgiven and that I've been washed clean. And George Clooney's character says, the state of Mississippi has a slightly different opinion. There is, in fact, a need for justice. We sometimes suffer the consequences of our sin and we immediately blame God for what's going on in our life. Brothers and sisters, God does not punish. God does not repay iniquity. He passes over them. He's patient and he's long-suffering because he wants to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. We know that we are not just. We know that we are not righteous. But something has to be paid for our sin for justice to prevail. As we consider this passage today, we're gonna look at those three points of faith and grace and justice. And where Paul, or where I should say Bob left off on Paul's comments in Romans 3, 9 through 20, where he emphatically states, none are righteous, not one. We are, in fact, rats in the bucket with no hope. But the contrast that is coming, that with the righteousness of God, we can be made whole. And I know this is a difficult concept. I remember preaching on it many years ago and my own father-in-law coming to me and saying, Jeff, I just can't get behind what you're saying, what God's word says. That your daughters, that your kids, that these people, they're wicked, that they're evil. Depravity of man is not about that we are as wicked as we could possibly be. The depravity of man is that there's none that are righteous. The standard is God himself. The standard is the law. And all have fallen short of this. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I said, I'm with you. I don't particularly like that language, but that's exactly what scripture says. If you're gonna compare my kids and us to other people, I think we're fantastic. 
But if you're comparing and contrasting us to the word of God, to the holiness of God, we are wicked and evil. For God is the standard. I don't just have to. It's not right. It's not running from a bear. I don't just have to outrun you. I have to live my life in perfection to see the face of God. And if I don't have the ability, then someone else has to give me their righteousness. And that's what we're going to see here. Point one, God's righteousness is through faith. Verses 21 and 22. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Paul's but now is a grand transition. I had a professor once who used to call it the glorious but. But now, in contrast to our unrighteousness, there is the righteousness that is of God. The gospel of God's righteousness is what's being revealed here. The phrase, the righteousness of God, you might call, recall from previous sermons or other people, but a righteousness that, that God credits to us freely. God, through the power of his spirit, gives you his righteousness. So that when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, his son. That's good news. When we start to understand that what this does is it becomes what we call imputed or credited, which are fancy ways of saying it gives me right standing. Hebrews tells me, right, to pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the face of God. If you enter into God's presence without the holiness and the righteousness of his son, you will be struck dead. It requires no compromise but the righteousness of him. But he says here, part A, righteousness apart from the law. This righteousness that is being revealed is apart from the law. So one does not become righteous by doing the law. There's no ability to do that. Righteousness, therefore, has to come a completely different way. And although the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, bears witness to the righteousness of God, it is credited to mankind only by faith. Only by faith. And to only those whom believe. Genesis 15, 6, we see the illustration of this in the Old Testament, right? And he, talking about Abraham, says, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. What's important to understand there is that God spoke to him first. And he believed God. And because he believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness. We never want to rob the primary causality of our salvation to ourselves. C.S. Lewis was the one who said that no sooner do we receive the love of God do we think that it is something intrinsically lovable about us rather than it being exclusively about God. It is all about him. For it is nothing about us. 
the prophets of the old, right? Jesus himself in Luke 24, 27 says that Moses and all the prophecies, prophecies and prophets are talking about him. He just sat there and said, you know what? The whole Testament, all about this guy. I love it when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just did. Because it's all about him. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, concerning this salvation, how we get this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, the gospel, to you by how? The Holy Spirit, not by you. It's true God's going to use you, but the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to do the work. I can give my best ever sermon to a morgue full of dead people, and none of them will arise and walk unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them. It has nothing to do with me. Our faith, part B of this, is not man-made. Our faith is not man-made. I'm not pulling myself up on my bootstraps. But the object of our faith is what matters. Belief is not just in any man-made thing. But our faith is in Jesus Christ the one that was revealed in scriptures in the Old Testament and the New. Christians are not just people of faith that walk around and say, yeah, 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 it's all good as long as you believe in Jesus. We don't put the gift of faith in just anything or in everything. Imagine how foolish that would make us look. My faith is in the object of Jesus Christ. You remember those publisher clearinghouse? If you're old enough to remember those, they used to mail those things to you at home that tell you, you may have won $1 million. I used to love to do this, right? I would always take that thing and I'd walk into my boss's office and I'd throw it down on his desk and say, it looks like I'm gonna be out of here. <laughs> because it's foolishness. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus we create in our mind, but the Jesus that's revealed in scripture. We don't believe in the Jesus Christ of ancient heresies. Arius, who was from 250 to 336, um, kind of today's contemporary today's, uh, type of heresy would be so-called Christian faiths who just say that Jesus is just a man. He was a prophet, but he's not priest and king. These people, they come door to door and they tell you about Jesus, but they're not talking about the Jesus that is God. Nor do we believe in the Jesus Christ of the ancient docetists, right? These, uh, that Jesus was some form of uh, an illusion, like a Star Wars hologram. He didn't have a real body. He's just a phantom that appeared to people. 
nor do we believe in Jesus Christ of the liberal social gospel. The liberal social gospel, which says that Jesus was merely an example, a story, an allegory. He's just a made-up character so that you would know how to live a good life. No. Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. He was foretold by the prophets thousands of years before he came. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, told hundreds of years before he was born, who lived a perfect life, who was crucified and died and was buried, and who rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. We believe in the Jesus Christ of the scriptures who is both the second person of the divine trinity and a human being as well. He is 100% God. He is 100% human. He is the propitiation, the thing that satisfied the wrath that is due unto you and to me. My object of my faith is what differentiates me from all other religions because Jesus Christ is my Lord and he is my savior. That one, not the one you make up. Amen. It is important for us not to have a man-made faith, but a faith about a very specific Jesus. People will come and say, Jeff, I don't know why we have to divide and separate over all these doctrinal issues. Can't we all just love Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? Well, the Jesus of the Bible. Thank you for engaging in doctrine because it only matters what Jesus' word says. No one cares about opinions. What does it say? We have the righteousness of God credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ. But the righteousness of God is credited to us also by God's grace. This is our second point. God's righteousness is through grace. Verses 23 through 25, kind of A, 25A. Right, he says this, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. I'll come back to that. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Why does he say Christ Jesus? Why not Jesus Christ? We'll come to that. Whom God put forward, in that nickel word, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Part A here is that Paul just gave us a summation of the gospel. The good news. These few verses are a summary of that. Though all have sinned and all have fallen short, justification or salvation comes by God's grace as a gift to be received by faith. It's an important word, the word gift. All have sinned and as we are justified by his grace in a gift. It's clear that no one makes any contribution to his own justification. It is purely of God. For many years, I remember looking at my kids and saying, saying, hey, how long do your mother and I have to keep showing you grace before you will obey? And I'm trying to reel that word in as it's coming out of my mouth because what I just said to them is opposite of what I just said. 
I'm not exercising grace if I have an expectation of your obedience. God gave you the gift of grace with no expectation of your obedience, and he continues to give it to you today. The power of the gospel is understanding that his grace forgave you for your sins of your past, his grace forgives you for what you're doing right at this moment, and you will need his future grace tomorrow. That's the beauty of God's gift. Never rob that from him because it all belongs to him and it's all to his glory and none to ours. Paul here also in part B is not teaching universalism. We always wrestle with context in scripture, right? If real estate is about location, 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 scripture is about context, context, context. Is God writing this hope to all humanity without exclusion? Or is God writing this to a specific person or a specific group of people? That's our ongoing wrestling match as we go through Romans. But I can assure you, he's not speaking of universalism. Because the Bible teaches this place called hell. And it teaches rather clearly that certain people will end up in this place called hell. Hell is a place, it's like Phoenix, but it's hotter. <laughs> but listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, he says, Jesus said it would be better to lose your right eye or your right hand than have your whole body cast into hell. Hell's a place. He said in Matthew 10, 28, he, he said that we should fear him. Why? Because he is the one who has the authority to cast us into hell. He also said in Matthew 13, 42, um, that this place is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Peter also tells us that when certain angels sinned against God, he cast them into hell. 2 Peter 2.4. There is a hell. And because some do in fact end up there, we do not preach universalism. Jesus' death on the cross was for his people. Not for all people such that none will end up in hell. If I say that he died for all people, then I make him non-effectual. He's really bad at his job. He's a batter in, in Major League Baseball. He's really great. He gets three out of 10 hits. God hits home runs, always. The gift of Jesus Christ, the gift that Paul tells us that God put forward is Jesus Christ as propitiation by his blood. So there's that nickel word. No one walks around and says, um, oh boy, I can't believe I did what I did when my parents find out about this, they're gonna kill me. I just don't even know what's going to be the propitiation for this. <laughs> oh no, it's gonna be the wrath of dad. I can tell you exactly what it's gonna be. And there is no one to pay this for you. Unless, of course, I choose to show grace. Propitiation, part C, what does this mean? In a simple definition of it, it means to satisfy wrath. 
It just simply means to satisfy wrath. But I think William Hendrickson, theologian from the 1900s, um, said it best. He says that propitiation is deliverance by means of the payment of a ransom from the guilt, from the punishment, and the power of sin. Jesus paid it all. He satisfied the wrath, the debt that you and I owe to the glory of God. So many people in the church today want to deny the payment of a ransom. They don't even want to preach about it. But the ransom that was paid in the death of Christ is important that it gets taught. Just like it's important to teach our youth, right, that nothing is actually for free. I don't care what the government tells you, it's not free. And even to that tune, Jesus' death is not free. It cost him everything. Just because it's free to you and me doesn't mean that it's not costing someone or something else. But the Bible teaches this payment of ransom. Even all the way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, four, and eight, four through eight says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the penalty. The wages of sin is death, right? The penalty that brought us peace, and with this, our wounds are healed. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as what? A ransom for many, not all. Romans 5, verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. We are saved by God from God. For only he has the ability to cast you into hell. That place of gnashing of teeth. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the perfect offering. The Bible most clearly teaches ransom. A ransom that is paid by God's grace. An unmerited favor that I cannot earn, that I cannot repay. This is the gift of grace. 1 John 4.10 says it this way, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, primary causality, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to pay the ransom that you and I owe. That's an incredible gift. But he did so in the way that he did it is point three. God's righteousness is through justice. 25b through 26, right? He says this. This was to show God's righteousness. Why did he do it? To show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, 
he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Part A of this is that Christ's death reveals God's demand for justice. There has to be justice. In order for God to be just, he must execute justice. And to do so, he put his perfect son as that offering. In weeks past, I spoke about how God, to Abraham, walked between the animals, making a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant with him, that if we don't, if you, Abraham, don't keep your promise, I will be cursed. And if I don't keep my promise, I will be cursed. It's a no-lose for Abraham and the nations that would follow him. This is Jesus paying Abraham and all of our sin because he kept his word in accordance to the covenant. To leave sin forever unpunished would lack justice. God had to prove his justice that came through his son. He had to pay for it. So God truly paid for that sin as he promised in the Abrahamic covenant. While simultaneously, while proving on the cross that God is just, it also is showing him to be the justifier. He's not only just, but he's the one who's gonna take the hit and is the justifier. It is literally God declaring you not guilty. Imagine a courtroom where Satan is saying, see, I told you, they don't follow you, they're still sinners. Not guilty. Because my son paid that debt too. Not guilty. The sentence had to be carried out. And Jesus was the only one that could do it. Part B is to understand that God the Father and God the Son in Jesus are in agreement. There's no good cop, bad cop. Old Testament, bad cop. New Testament, good cop. All of it is a prologue. It's an introduction of that which is to come. It's revealing to us the wrath of God being revealed upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness so that he can make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. It's contrast. He first loved us, and then he sent his son to be the satisfying of our wrath. He went to the cross willingly. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, and who is Jesus? The founder and the perfecter of our faith, he's primary causality, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He wasn't just kicking and screaming. He considered it joy. Why was it joy? The joy that was set before him is that he took great joy in saving God's people. John 6 tells us, right, that no man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws them unto me. I always call that the Mrs. Kirby verse, right? My fourth grade teacher who humiliated me for a whole year. When I would say, Mrs. Kirby, can I go to the bathroom? I don't know, Jeff, can you? 
you are so correct. May I go to the restroom? God's word is abundantly clear. No man has the ability to come unto God unless the Father who sent the Son draws them unto him. We start to understand that there's agreement and the joy that's set before him is that Jesus would atone. He would pay for the sins of those that would believe in him. But part C That question I asked at the very beginning, how were people saved in the Old Testament? If Jesus saves the people of the New Testament, then how were the Old Testament people saved? Because Paul writes that God had passed over former sins in his divine forbearance. Forbearance is just patient, self-controlled restraint. We'll see it later in Romans when he says, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy? So while salvation in the New Testament era is through faith in Jesus Christ, salvation in the Old Testament era was through faith in the promised Messiah. When you see Paul using Christ Jesus, know that that is the Jesus he's referring to of the Old Testament. That's the promise to come. And when he says Jesus Christ, that's the promise that came. Paul is trying to get this across. As I pull the the worship and prayer team back up, right? I want you to see the difference, right? The difference is now we know Christ more fully. Christ was known by the promises that were made in the Old Testament. If we go back to the letter that Paul has sent here in Romans 1, we look at 1 through 6. Listen to what Paul says, or look at it, right? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, the Jesus of the old, right? Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised when? Beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the whole Old Testament, concerning his son who was descended from David, fulfillment of prophecy, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to what? The spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, present tense, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The object of our faith, the gospel, has always been Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. The Old Testament concealed the cross. The New Testament reveals it. The mystery is no longer hidden and God's righteousness is revealed and is known through faith and it comes through his grace and it reveals his justice. This is the radiance of God in person beyond all human explanation. Once was invisible and now is visible God. Jesus Christ. We have something that's even greater than Abraham that he had, greater than what Moses had, greater than what David had. We have a full view of the cross. 
They too were saved by God's grace through faith as an act of God's divine justice. Christ paid their debt as well. But we, we today have a more complete knowledge of Jesus Christ and his death for us as the propitiation by his blood on the cross, proving his righteousness for all time. This is the gospel. God's righteousness revealed, manifested in Christ apart from the law. It is by his gift of faith, not our works. It is by his gift of grace, not something we deserve or something we've earned. It is by his justice that Jesus paid it all, both sides of the transaction. He is both just and the justifier of our salvation. Do you see the radiance of God's glory that's manifested apart from the law through the person of Jesus Christ? 100% God, 100% human. He paid it all, and it makes it the gospel for all time. Brothers and sisters, as we close and we, we worship our God, I don't want you to think about your singing at Highlands Church. I want you to know that you are joining the choir of God's holy throne room. You're joining with all the saints that have gone before. You're singing with all of the angels to the glory and the holiness of a holy God. And we enter into that throne room with fear and reverence because Jesus Christ, he paid it all. Amen? To God be the glory. Let's stand and worship this God. Jesus paid it all. Amen? Listen, brothers and sisters, we're gonna have the prayer team down here, and if you are in a moment of life, in a difficult situation, come and pray with a brother or sister. Come and lay that burden at the foot of the cross. The ground is most level at the foot of the cross. Come and lay that burden down. But maybe you're here today, and this is the first time the gospel has been taught to you this way. And you're questioning whether or not, do I truly believe Do I have this faith? Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourself. Examine, do I have the faith of God? Do I have this gift? If you're concerned about it all, come see me. Come talk to Thomas or Bob or any one of the other pastors. Come and pray. But I would pray that today you would take the gospel to heart and that you would live your life in utter dependence upon him and his glory. Amen? I love you guys. We will see you next week. Minister to one another.